Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Eccentric, the makers of the K-Box and the new K-Pulley. Guys, flywheel training's really grown in popularity of late, and although it's something that's been around for a while, the simple reason that it's grown in popularity is because it works. We've been lucky to have a K-Box in our weight room for the past three years, and we've seen some really great things when it comes to improving the athlete's ability to change direction, and then looking at our return to play protocols with different lower body injuries with the student athletes. The love-hate relationship that everyone has with the K-Box is now just going to grow more with the addition of the K-Pulley. The ability to do standing presses, pulls, rip-throughs, and knee drive exercises is just going to be another arsenal to our training and another addition to the love-hate relationship that our student-athletes have with the awesome tools that come from Eccentric. Go ahead and hop over to Eccentric.com today to check out what they have. Guys, I can't recommend it enough, and I guarantee you won't be disappointed not just with the products, but with the awesome customer service that Eccentric provides. Hey, everybody. If you enjoy the podcast and the content that it provides, make sure you hop over and check out the all-new Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is a combination of the CVA SPS community and the Rugby Strength Coach community, bringing you what is sure to be the Internet's leading resource for continuing education for strength and conditioning professionals. Combining these two resources has allowed us to bring some of the best content from some of the best minds in the world together for your one-stop shop to better improve the continuing education for not just yourself, but your entire staff. Bringing together all of the lectures from the Rugby Strength Coach community, along with the lectures exclusively done for the Central Virginia Sport Performance community, and all the lectures performed at the Central Virginia Sport Performance Seminar, make this an absolute must for performance coaches around the world. The world-class lectures at the Strength Coach Network are not all that you'll see as well. The discussion in the forums and the support and the career guidance from some of the top practitioners in the world, from people all over the world, makes this an absolute must and a great place for you to network, learn, and grow as a performance professional. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com and use the code CVASPS, that's C-V-A-S-P-S, to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. We're sure you're going to find great value in the Strength Coach Network and are really excited to have you involved. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com and use the code CVASPS to check it out today. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we have an absolutely sensational discussion with Dr. Nicole Sertica talking about the return to play continuum when it comes to ACL injuries. After a quick little intro, Dr. Sertica is going to get right into you know, discussions and questions related to not just knee injuries, but the actual surgery process. This is going to drive us right down the rabbit hole of deconditioning and how evaluations and return to play can be a little off because of this. She then touches upon the, you know, the importance of confidence in the psychological aspect of rehab. And then we finish off talking about reintroducing athletes to the weight room and how we can move them forward, possibly by taking a couple steps back. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Doc, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yes, I'm super stoked about this one because this is a topic that I don't think any of us talk enough about and I think is one that at times we, we kind of glance over too much. But before we get too far into it, let's, let's let everybody know who you are, where you're at, how you got there, and, and you know the quick Cliff Notes version of your background. Yeah, so I'm Nicole Sertica. I'm a physical therapist in Los Angeles, and I grew up playing soccer my whole life with the goal to play Division I college soccer. 
right before I signed my letter of intent, I fractured my tibia and fibula while playing soccer. Um, so both bones in the lower leg I broke right through, had uh, surgery on it, had to go through physical therapy myself. And that was when I first got introduced to strength training and performance training and was able to go through rehab and go play Division One soccer. So I really credit my physical therapist with helping me to achieve my goals at a point in my life when I thought everything I had worked so hard for was slipping away. So that's what motivated me to become a physical therapist and help other athletes to achieve their goals at a relatively low point in their lives. So that's where I'm at today. Now I work um, predominantly with soccer players, but I work with all athletes and all all humans who have any type of movement goals. And um, I run a concierge-style business, so I am all cash-based, and I see people either in their home gyms or on the soccer field or in, in a gym, in a weight room, on a track, anywhere that's going to be helpful to that individual. And I also teach a continuing education course for other healthcare professionals, strength coaches, soccer coaches, about how to work with soccer players better. So kind of serving that niche market of soccer players. So one of the main things that comes up with soccer players, um, of course, is ACL injuries. Now, not that it's the most common of injuries, right? But because it causes such a time loss from sport, it is a significant injury. And what makes it even more significant is the high rate of a re-injury. So right now, the current expectation for, let's say, a 16-year-old female soccer player who tears her ACL is that she'll have surgery, and in a couple months, uh, after a couple months of rehabilitation, she'll go back to being on her team and playing at the same level she was before. About 90% of people have that expectation, that they'll be able to return to their pre-injury level of sport. What we know is that only a little over half of people actually do return to pre-injury level of sport. And that's significant because now that's a whole bunch of people not going back to something they expected to be able to. That's not a good outcome. So only over a little over half, people, half of the people who have the surgery have a successful outcome. And that begs the question, of course, do they even need the surgery in the first place, right? If you if you were able to tell preemptively that this person was not going to be able to return to their pre-injury level of sport, would that, and you told that person that, would they still decide to undergo surgery and months of rehab? So that's one question that that brings up for me. Now, of course, the gold standard for young female athletes or any young athlete is still to have the surgery because we don't want them to have further instances of instability in their knee while trying to play a cutting pivoting sport like soccer or basketball, or volleyball or anything like that. Now, when we talk about the high rate of re-injury, something else we need to look at is how is our testing being done to determine that these players, these athletes are ready to return to sport. Is that where the issue is? You know, are we telling athletes that they're ready when really they may not be? And that's what is increasing the risk of re-injury. So between one in three and one in four athletes who return to their pre-injury level of sport 
will end up having a secondary ACL injury. So that means either on the same side with a graft rupture or the other knee has an ACL tear. And that usually occurs in the first two years after they return to their sport. So when we look at the return to sport testing, it's really not all that consistent across the board. Some clinics have not really any objective measurements. They use just kind of, okay, it's been six months, go ahead. Um, some rely on the surgeon to do whatever it is that they do in, in an exam room, maybe look at an updated MRI or an x-ray, touch the knee a little bit, make sure they get full extension, maybe watch the person do a squat or a hop, and then they clear them to return to sport. There are certain tests that have been put forth, such as the single leg hop tests. So that would be the single leg hop for distance, the triple hop, the triple crossover hop, and the single leg six meter um, time top. And those four tests are typically used in the clinic. And what we do is we compare the involved leg to the uninvolved leg. So whether that's for time, like the six meter um, time top test, or distance with the other three tests. And as long as they are able to achieve 90% or more of the uninvolved leg, then they're given a, a passing rating and that says, okay, you're able to return to sport. The problem with these four tests is that it's very easy to compensate. And we know now from some emerging research that after an ACL reconstruction, there are intralimb compensations. So instead of loading the knee, the athlete is now loading the hip and ankle to make up for the knee. And we can't always see that. And in fact, we usually cannot see that clinically. So it's a, a compensation or shift in how they're moving that we really can't determine just from looking at them in the clinic. So they may be underloading their knee. Another problem with those hop tests is that after an ACL reconstruction, there is typical deconditioning of the entire body. The person is not playing their sport anymore. They're not working out the same way anymore. So the entire body deconditions. Now, during the rehab process, when we're trying to strengthen the surgical side or the injured side, are we forgetting about the other side sometimes with so much focus on the involved side? So now there's several weeks of deconditioning of the uninjured leg. So now when we go to do a comparative strength test or a comparative hop test, we're really just comparing a weak injured leg to a weak uninjured leg. So that's another issue with the hop tests. Now, they still tell us some good information. They can still tell us, of course, if they're able to stick a landing, if they're able to control deceleration, if they're able to get enough power propulsion, how their rate of force development is, what their mechanics look like. So in that six meter timed test, they're having to go at max speed and it sort of starts to mimic a sprint mechanic. So are they getting good knee drive? Are, are they getting minimal ground contact time? Are they getting minimal backside action? Um, are they getting reciprocal arm swing? Do they have trunk stiffness? So there's other valuable information that these hop tests tell us. So I still do them. But are they, should they really be our standard in releasing someone to return to sport again? Some other tests that we use are quad strength um, limb symmetry index, hamstring strength limb symmetry index. Now for those, 
we know that quad strength limb symmetry, symmetry index right now seems to be the, the single best predictor of subsequent knee injury. So those athletes who are able to achieve 90% limb symmetry in their quad strength testing, they're at decreased risk. And in fact, every, for every 1% increase in that limb symmetry index for quad strength, there comes a 3% decrease in injury risk. So we know quad strength is really important. Now, an issue there is that that's typically measured with an isokinetic dynamometer, which is several thousands of dollars. <laughs> most clinics don't have one. So how are most clinicians rating someone's ability to return to sport using quad strength limb symmetry index? Most of them are using simply a manual muscle test, which is just kick your leg out and don't let me push it down. There's no way that you can be sensitive enough in that to tell if there's a percentage difference side to side. Um, so that's, that's one of the big problems is that we're not testing effectively. Um, another issue is time, right? So those are the criteria based uh, return to sport testing. So you have to pass X criteria in order to pass and return to sport, but we do also have to pay attention to time. So a great study coming out of the Delaware Oslo cohort, um, and this would be Lynn Snyder-Mackler out of Delaware and Hege Grindem in Oslo, Norway, they uh, did a study that showed that every month delay in return to sport came with a, I think it was a 51% reduction in injury risk up until the nine-month mark. Then from nine months to 23 months, which is when their study concluded, there is real no significant difference. So their argument is that we should be waiting at least nine months to send players back to their sport, regardless of how they look functionally, how they might be doing on hop tests and strength tests. We need to be waiting nine months. There's some other evidence that real healing and ligamentization doesn't occur until two years after the surgery. So there's been arguments put forth by the likes of Tim Hewitt almost almost facetiously, you know, should be should we really be waiting two years? But in knowing that nobody is going to do that, but in actuality, if that's when real healing occurs, and we know that most re-injuries occur in the first two years from return to sport, maybe we should be waiting two years. Of course, I don't ever foresee that happening in athletics. Um, that's kind of the whole point of having surgery is that you can go back to sport after. But like I said, as we know, a little only a little over half of people actually do return to their pre-injury levels. Then there's also a component of psychological readiness. And we've seen this with the NBA player, uh, Derek Rose, who tore his ACL and then w went through the rehab process and, um, you know, was was physically ready, but kept saying, I don't feel confident yet. I, psychologically, I'm not there. I'm not ready to step onto that court yet. And while athletes, I think because of the culture of athletics, that that may be something that's frowned upon from a cultural perspective. Like, oh, wow, you're physically ready, but you just you're scared. You're too, you're scared to play. Um, I think that that's a really important component to pay attention to, because if somebody doesn't feel confident in their knee, that's going to cause them to move differently. And that's going to be inefficient for them from a performance standpoint, let alone from an injury risk standpoint. So those three components, time, 
meeting objective criterion and then being psychologically prepared to get back onto the field or the court. Awesome. A lot there. So let's take a couple steps back. Let's talk about evaluating. And I think that this is one thing, especially in the college setting, where I think we have some issues. I'm super happy that you talked about the fact that if I tear my right leg, we're doing all this work on my right leg, that maybe comparing it to the left isn't necessarily the best thing because detrained is detrained, and if it's detrained and versus X and Y, like, okay, so you're coming back and you're in crappy shape, congratulations. Um, <laughs> but when we look at these things, I think that there is still some confusion with returning to sport and then returning to competition. Where do you, as a practitioner, see that kind of connection between we're out of the clinical stage, the complete clinical stage, we're into the weight room stage, we're into the returning to some form of technical, tactical skill work, and then it's, go get it, kiddo, it's time to get back on the court of the field. Yes, yeah, so actually, return to sport should not be seen as like this one day, and this is what you're alluding to. It's more of a continuum, a sliding scale. So it should never, and, and this is the number one question athletes ask, right? When, when can I play again? They want a date on the calendar that they can circle and mark up and say, I'm returning to sport on this day. That is not how it works. Return to sport really is a continuum where, where I'm on day one, educating them on, okay, this is your sport. These are the demands you need to be prepared for. We're going to get you there, and this is how we're going to do it. And it's going to be a long haul, and it's going to be hard work. But if you want to return to your sport, this is what has to be done. Now, there are three distinct zones, and I don't want to say phases of return to play or return to sport because it's not really – they're not really blocked phases. It, it really, truly is more of a continuum, more of a spectrum. So the first phase is when they're returning to, um, it's like modified activity. So maybe they can go back to a team session. And, and as the clinician, as the healthcare professional, I say to the strength coach, hey, they can do back squats to a box. Um, you know, try not to have them get to 90 degrees just yet. Um, they're more comfortable going to 60 degrees. But they can do back squats to a box. Um, or they can do goblet squats, but let's not load front squats yet. So there, there's certain ways that we can modify what they're doing, but they're still back and participating in team activities. And I think this is important to do as early as possible, just from a psychological standpoint. When an, an athlete, the, what they do becomes part of their self-identity, right? I used to introduce myself as, oh, I'm Nicole, I'm a soccer player. Like that's, it's not, I play soccer. It's not something I do. It's something that I am. So when we take players away from their team and solely keep them in a clinical setting, we're doing something to them psychologically where they feel isolated and lonely and less than their team. And that's not good for someone who's used to being on a team, on a, in a team sport. So getting them back to modified activities in, in the weight room with their team, on the field with their team. So it, hey, you know what, we've done some straight line running. You can do a modified version of your team's warm-up today. Or, hey, we've been working on changes of direction and cutting. You can do all pre-planned 
drills with your team. And it's a simple conversation with the coach, you know, an email, a phone call. Hey, so-and-so has been doing this in the clinic. Go ahead and let them do all drills that are pre-planned and non-contact in nature. I don't want them to do game activities yet, um, but they can go ahead and do, you know, certain technical drills. That's fine. And I, I think that's something that we should be doing. And then once the athlete feels comfortable with that, and we've seen more things in the clinic, tested a few more things, they're doing more things in the weight room, then we say, okay, they can do all game activities, but now they're the they're the neutral player. They're in a bubble. They can't have contact. And then that would probably be the last thing that we add in. So it really is a sliding scale. So then once they're out of that stage of it, then they're back to full competition and they're, they're free to play however they want to, but they're not quite back at their level of performance yet. And that would be the last stage. So if we take somebody who is used to being the leading goal scorer on their team and they're scoring a goal every other game and they're back playing, but they're not playing at their same level and they haven't scored in three or four games, they're not back at their previous performance levels. They're still playing. Congratulations, we've you know done the job of getting them back on the field. But can we truly say that that's a successful return to sport yet? Because they're not at the same level of performance. When they've truly gone back and they're competing at a level, performing at a level that is at or better than how they were performing previously. So if if that's something in the weight room, they were squatting 200 pounds for a three rep max. And now I'm talking about someone like me, of course, not a football player. <laughs> um, you know, they, uh, and now they're back in the weight room, but they're at 175. They're still squatting. They're still doing all the activities with no restrictions, but they're not at the same performance level. And I think that's where we drop the ball a lot. I think that's where healthcare professionals can say, hey, they're back to their previous activities, done and dusted. Um, but we're not, and, and this isn't any one particular entity's fault. Sometimes the insurance company says, we're going to stop paying now because they're at their previous level. Um, sometimes it's the surgeon who says they're good to do whatever they want. They can stop physical therapy now, or they can stop, you know, whatever now. They can stop their rehab and just go back to their sport. Or if it's the athlete themselves saying, I'm back to doing everything I was before, so I'm just going to start playing again. So I think that that's where we end up dropping the ball with athletes is this return to performance. And I would argue it's important to get them at better levels, better performance metrics than they were before their injury. Because if we get them back to how they were pre-injury, we're just putting them back into a state in which they were able to get injured. So I would argue we need to get them better than they were before the injury. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think that that's something that all of us really missed the boat on. I think that there's been a, a great push for collecting data, whether it be with force plates or whatever you can get um, with, with young athletes and then using these benchmarks as like our starting point. But if something went wrong with the car, do you want the car to be the same way it was before? Yeah, exactly. You don't want the brakes performing at 80% of what they were before. <laughs> right. So I think then the next question is, so how are you then looking at these young men and women that you get to work with 
and identifying where these, you know, the kinks in the armor are in order to keep those percentages of, of re-injury going down. So you in, I'm lucky I'm in a unique position and I, I don't, I'm not in contract with insurance companies. I'm strictly cash based and I'm one-on-one with my athletes and I can go into a weight room with them. I can go onto a soccer field with them. I'm very flexible with how I work with them. I'm not constrained by my setting, um, which is a, an incredibly unique situation. That is not how most physical therapists operate. And I understand that, um, how, how I'm able to do it is, and especially having a soccer background because I'm also a soccer coach is when I work with my soccer players, I get them on the soccer field and I know what they have to do. I know what they have to be able to perform So I have them run through things that they're going to have to face on the soccer field. And if I see something that looks off, I'll come back and test it out and see what's going on and what's causing that. Um, Also, I'm a big proponent of going to your athletes' performances. So going to their competitions, going to their games, going to their training sessions, when you get the ability to, when you get the chance to, and seeing how they're performing right? Or watching a game video. Okay, send me send me a video of your last game so I can take a look at how you did. Um, getting to look at that and seeing where, where the kinks are that needs to be worked out. Are they, for example, are they not scoring as many goals because they don't have their speed back, so they're not getting on the end of crosses as much as they were before their injury? Now I can say, okay, you're not making those runs. Why is that? Well, I am making the runs. I'm just not getting there in time okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about maybe your quickness, um, your repeated sprint ability. Are you getting tired after 30 minutes of doing this? And so we need to work on your endurance a little bit better and repeated sprint ability. Um, So I think having conversations with them about their performance. Well, what is it about your performance that you're not achieving right now? And then break down and see why that is. And then again, with with the return to sport continuum, that means that we can regress too, and it, and not necessarily a regression, but we can slide the scale back a little bit. So if they go through and they're having, they're doing modified perform, uh, modified training sessions, modified lifting sessions, and then they they go back and they play in a game or they have their first unrestricted um, friendly match, and or a scrimmage, and they say, you know what, I, I didn't feel great with that. My knee kind of swelled uh, swelled up a little bit after that okay that's fine we don't need to stop your sport activity we just scale you back to doing what you were doing before that so the mod all the modified activities you were doing and then next week we'll try it again i love it i love it i love it so let's get you out of here on this doc if you were to give because really i think a lot of times in college how it ends out is the strength coaches are kind of the last line between it. So if you were to give a strength conditioning professional one piece of advice when it came to this spectrum that you're working with, what would that be? Get them back in the weight room as early as possible. Talk to the athletic trainer, the physical therapist, the surgeon, whoever is is directing the care from that end. Have your program with you and say, okay, what of these things can they do? And they're doing those things with the team then, okay, what of these things can they not do right now? And then modify those. Okay, they, like I said, they can't do 
Um, they can't do walking lunges. Can they do a split squat? Okay, great. That's what they're doing while their team is doing walking lunges or whatever other activity is going on. If they can't do step downs because they don't have the eccentric control yet. Okay, we're not there yet. They're going to do step ups on a smaller box. Um, so I, there's always a way to get them in the weight room earlier. And the earlier you get them back in there, strengthening the entire body, they can still do their entire upper body workout for the most part, you know, whether they might have to modify a couple things due to weight bearing status or something like that, but have them in the weight room doing all of the things that they possibly can with their team at the times that they would normally do it, normalize them as quickly as possible, and then just see what they're capable of and keep progressing it. I think we haven't, there's this inherent flaw in physical therapy on our side that we underload athletes. So that's where I look to strength coaches to be like, okay, we need this progressive overload because we need tissue adaptation. We need these players to get strong again. So this is where we need you guys to come in and be like, yeah, okay, we're loading you up. You know, doctor said you could do this movement and you're doing it fine at this weight. We're increasing the weight next time. Don't be afraid of the injury. See what they're able to tolerate see what movements they're able to perform, and then keep progressing them. Love it. Make plan B as close to plan A as possible and keep stressing the kids as, as long as you can to get them back as fast as possible. Doc, this is killer stuff. Where can people see more of what you're trying to do? So I have a website that has, kind of encompasses everything that I do. Um, it's probably the easiest way to see um, everything that I have out there, and that's NicoleCerticaPhysio.com. My last name is really difficult. It's S-U-R-D-Y-K-A. And then physio is P-H-Y-S-I-O. I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Nicole PT, Twitter and Certica Physio. I'm on Facebook, but I'm not good at Facebook. Um, so if you're going to try to find me, don't make it be through Facebook. And I teach a course, as I said, it's called, it's called Managing the Uninjured Soccer Player. Um, I teach it around the country. I'm going to be coming around all parts of the country and then next year all parts of the world so you'll definitely i'll definitely be in in a place that's close by to anyone listening awesome doc truly appreciate your time this is sensational people are going to love it thank you so much i appreciate you having me on yeah well we'll be in touch really soon thank you so much thank you and a huge thanks to dr nicole certica for spending the time with us today guys just some some really awesome stuff and some things to kind of take a step back and and kind of reevaluate with what we're looking at when you know you get the unfortunate situation where you've had an athlete get injured like how we can be better at reintroducing them to things how we can keep them involved more how we can make plan a closer to plan b just a ton of great stuff here from dr certica i can't thank her enough not just for spending the time today and being so open honest and candid in her sharing but all the great stuff that she's sharing and, and trying to help you know push the profession forward so doc keep up the great work we truly appreciate everything you're doing and are really grateful for your time today. And as always, guys, if you did enjoy the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we are just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.